0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the
1: podcast, I have an extra special guest and a a funny story about how this uh, podcast uh, came about. I interviewed Boaz Weinstein back in May of 2022. It was one of the most popular uh, podcasts we did this year. And when the folks over at the Bloomberg Invest Conference came to me and said, hey, we're looking for somebody who's a little out-of-the-box thinker and kind of interesting. Um, who might you suggest as a interviewee? That was easy. I said, we just did this interview with Boaz six months ago. Everybody seemed to really like it. He's very much an outside-the-box thinker, covers th- everything from credit derivatives to SPACs to stocks and bonds but from a unusual perspective not your typical investor for for example he's been an investor in SPACs because he looks at it as a guaranteed uh fixed income return in a in a time of zero with potential upside uh, so he's done that really really successfully he's one of the five largest SPAC investors in the world he's the person, in case you don't know who Boaz Weinstein is of Saba Capital, he's the person who made the bet against the London Whale and then went to uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and presented at one of their conferences and said, by the way, you guys, you have this person in London that's sucking up all of the energy options. It's a wildly lopsided bet, and it's going to blow up. Oh, and P.S., I've bet against him. And lo and behold, when the London well blows up six months later, Saba Capital nets three or $400 million on the trade. Just an amazing story, an incredible ability to look at risk and figure out when it's uh, a fair bet or when it's an asymmetrical bet where, hey, if we lose, we lose a little bit, but if we win, it's a giant home run. Uh, so he's really an intriguing person. We did the interview at the Bloomberg Invest conference, so when you hear the audio of this, it's a live event. You'll hear the you'll hear the audience. You'll hear um, people uh, rustling papers. It's not the usual. Hey, we're in a, a, a studio that's pristine, and you don't hear anything other than the two of us speaking and, and breathing. Uh, so this was a live event, but it was so well received, and it was so interesting. And he just is such a fascinating investor, we thought it would be perfect uh, for the holiday weekend. So with no further ado, here is my live interview with Saba Capital's Boaz Weinstein at the Bloomberg Invest live conference. So this is the first time I'm wearing a suit and tie in I don't know how long. Um, And I'm glad...
2: He didn't didn't tell me about the tie. Sorry, guys. So...
1: So, um, So we previously had a conversation, um, was it earlier this year, last year? I can't even tell anymore. And there were a lot of really interesting things that that came up. I think this audience would love to hear an update on what's happened since then. But but I have to start by asking, you were a highly ranked chess player as a young kid. You have a reputation as a killer uh, poker player and a dangerous blackjack player. These involve making probabilistic assessments about an inherently unknowable future. Um, seems like you've been setting yourself up for tail risk and derivatives and trading since you were a kid.
2: You're, you're giving me a lot of credit for having planned everything since I was five. I think the only tail risk I was thinking about when I was five was, was pin the tail on the donkey, to be, to be quite honest. So you know, really, I, um, I, I enjoy games of strategy. And it turns out that Wall Street is, is the ultimate uh, puzzle and challenge. And, and so, yeah, so I've been working on Wall Street since I was 15. And I think um, at a young age, I'd already seen a lot. So
1: let's, let's talk uh, about what's going on right now. We've discussed and, and you've brought up how different this bear market has been from from recent bear markets. Uh, what are the similarities? What are the differences? What makes 2022 so unique?
2: Yeah, so when you think about not only what's happened, but even the investor behavior that it that it um, engenders, um, a lot of the tail events that I've lived through, I was trading while 9-11 happened, I was at the New York Fed the weekend that Lehman was failing, a lot of those events, not all of them, but a lot of them were bolts from the blue. COVID, you kind of had a month from when people knew it was a thing before the market started falling, but they were bolts from the blue. And if you had not done anything about it, you had plenty of air cover to say, who Who knew who knew this would happen? what could I have done in advance? whereas this one has been so telegraphed when it at least the the initial part of it about inflation being transitory and then transitory and then transitory and then not transitory so there was a lot of time in 2021 to get worried and very little places to hide to say um, you know it was not reasonable to have thought what if this 40-year bull market in bonds not only comes to an end, but does a sharp reversal. Those were things that we and other managers were talking about, where the, the 60-40 plans that were using treasuries as their, you know, as their antidote to a sell-off, it turns out the treasuries were the poison. And so you know this, is, this has been different in that respect. It's also been different because you have so many different problems swirling around, some of them in conflict with each other. So solve one at the expense of the other. And then the number of new things showing up, whether it's you know, um, maybe untoward rumors about Credit Suisse or what's happening in the UK guilt market um, is it just makes the number of balls in the air enormous in terms of things, known unknowns, that could really cause more than a uh, a sell-off but more like a crash.
1: So, So let's talk about that. You've discussed multiple problems in multiple areas taking place at the same time. How do you distinguish between what's a genuine risk, what's a known risk, and what's truly an unknown unknown?
2: So usually, you have your, your known unknown. Like something's bad, we just don't know how bad, and you can respond to it. So you know 9-11 happens, it's not a good time to buy airline stocks. you know COVID happens, not a good bad time to buy airline stocks. 08 happens, probably you should de-risk from financials, even like the moment after it happened. And here, you just don't know exactly what to do. So normally, for example, European investment grade trades five basis points lower than US investment grade. Now it trades 30 basis points higher, 25 basis points higher is that enough? Europe's going to have a much more severe recession according to those that, that, that pontificate. And, um, uh, and so whether or not you underweight or overweight Europe is all about what do you think happens with, with Ukraine? Does it, is there a chance it gets asymmetric? What can be done to mitigate? And then at the same time, you have these other theaters, whether it's zero COVID policy in China, maybe extending well past the, the party congress, um, continuing to cause disruption in the economy. So so really, what's happened is people just feel risk all over. They've felt it now for 10 months, and they're de-risking the things that are in their book. And that has led to some things that are, I don't view as particularly risky blowing out as much as things that I do view as risky. And that's that's created some interesting distortions, interesting opportunities.
1: So so let's talk about those opportunities. What has been overly de-risks? What are, are looking attractive? after investors throw the baby out with the bathwater
2: right so not knowing where to focus your arrows and instead just focusing on de-risking and the comments that jamie Dimon made about bracing for a hurricane and another ceo said bracing for a tornado and someone else mentioned some other weather weather disaster you know like (laughs) what do they actually mean when they do that how do they actually brace other than like you know other than a physical brace what are they doing they're a bank they have loans they go to their loan portfolio hedging group and they say please increase the amount of hedging so what does the bank do it looks at the loans that it's made often to the best companies in in america or in the world and de-risks where the risk is and so we did a um, a number of trades with banks where they're coming to us to say in the middle of all this we want to buy protection on Coca-Cola, on Johnson, Johnson, on Home Depot, Walmart, you know, AT&T, Verizon, these big companies that have a lot of debt outstanding in terms of revolvers, and and not relative to their their balance sheet, but but relative to just the quantity of debt. And so there are a bunch of names, in fact, I think everyone I mentioned, where if you look at where it is today, it's above the worst day of COVID. So those names that are not even candidates for discussion about could they run into trouble as credits are above their worst day of COVID, whereas the index that they sit in um, is only trading at two-thirds of the worst day of COVID. Why would those names be worse? Why would they be at the the widest levels and the average be only at two-thirds? It's because of this technical in the market, and I think technicals are the biggest force in the credit market now, much more than fundamentals, much more than any time in my career, where if somebody has something to do, which is to buy billions of dollars of Verizon one-year or two-year CDS, that's going to move the price to levels that just doesn't make sense from a fundamental point of view. And so what we've been doing is going along those names, selling that insurance to fund protection on companies with a history of blowing out if actually there is a, a real recession or some other kind of crisis. And um, and so that that would be found usually in consumer finance companies, um, economically sensitive company cyclicals, steel, shipping, paper. And um, and so we've found it very interesting in the middle of this, this problem to be able to find attractive long-short trades uh, because of the technical distortion.
1: So, So are you looking at the fundamentals of these equities? Are you looking at the technicals of how they're trading? Or are you looking at the credit spreads and saying, hey, people are way too frightened beyond what they should
2: be? Yeah. So we probably more than most on the credit side do look at equities for clues. And sometimes there is one market above faster or slower than the other. But we're We're sourcing the tail protection that we provide our investors, which is one of the main things we do, um, through the credit market. And we'll get to that, I'm sure. And we're paying for it, because there are many investors that want it paid for. They don't want to just bleed the negative carry. Through some of these, I view as ultra low-risk trades in uh, Verizon or Coca-Cola.
1: Do we want to get more specific? Is it strictly an equity bet or is it equity combined with some derivative? How are you uh, putting together these
2: paired trades? So you could look at the history and first you could use common sense and say, is this the kind of company that could run into trouble? Is it not? And, um, and the, the price is not efficient um, compared to the past where fundamentals were the biggest driver. We're looking at the, the credit, a little bit about the fundamentals, but the fundamentals are sort of not in question on the long side. It's really, have these served us well and investors well as tail hedges in the past? We look at 08 and, and 2020, 2012, and say, is this the kind of company that regularly blows out from 100 basis points to 400 basis points? Um, take General Motors, for example. They defaulted in 08. Problems with the UAW behind them, they've still been enormously volatile as a credit, as a, as a as a company super exposed to the U.S. economy and the global economy and the uh, pressures, the credit in 2020 went from 100 to 700 back to 100. And and it's had that kind of roller coaster. And so we look at it and say, that's a really volatile credit. And when it's low, that's really asymmetric. You could buy protection, and if things change, it might move out a lot. Right now, it's at 250. It has moved out a lot more than the index. And so we're looking at, at, like, at history is to give us a clue. We're looking at forward-looking um, uh, models, uh, equity vol, um, fundamentals. But what we're at the end also doing, and I should make, make sure I say this, is we're providing liquidity to the banks that need it. And if they come and say they want to buy protection on Pepsi or LVMH or Nestle, that's amazing. You, you've now given me um, the, the ammunition I needed to go and fund protection on companies that really may run into trouble.
1: Mm. So, so let's talk a little bit about history. You mentioned 08 uh, and 2020. We can also mention 2000 in the same sentence uh, that were fairly uh, rapid and disorderly dislocations. Maybe um, 2020 might be the exception. This you've described 2022 as sort of a slow motion implosion, and yet it's still been very orderly what makes this year so unusual compared to um, previous collapses that really seem to, to make a bottom and snap back uh, pretty
2: abruptly? Yeah, so so first, um, there's the market is still trying to figure out what it should most worry about. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's like just when you think something, maybe we're at peak inflation past us, maybe um, the supply chain problems are coming down, but then you have new things. And so there's just been this this... Um, this sell-off that continues to find new rationale. And then you have the Fed um, leaning on the market, actually. And when, when Powell sounded too dovish, you know, first uh, all of his peers came out to, to say, no, no, it, you know, the market, uh, we're, we're going to keep going. And they, they've continued to say that, Kashkari, most recently. So so you have the Fed kind of um, intent on showing that they mean what they say. and uh, And so... And probably liking that the market is going down on an orderly way, even if it's created some disorder in other markets. Uh, Look what's happening in the UK. And so I'm used to, and we're we're all used to, sell-offs that are fairly quick, that we know even 08 was five or six months from Lehman to the lows of March 09, where at the end of it, you can kind of wonder, is there an all-clear sign? We have the Fed behind us, uh, quantitative easing. Now we don't really know who the savior is, because at the end of all of this, we're still going to have quantitative tightening and shrinking the balance sheet. And so whereas a lot of sell-offs were just a prelude to a, to a bull market one or six months later, you know, this has the feeling to me like we're going to be worried about some number of these things or new things for potentially quarters and maybe even years to come. So, so no capitulation yet, no flush,
1: which gives us that all clear signal. How much of that is based on truly not knowing what the Fed's going to do, or is it we don't know
2: which potential problem is real and which is fake news? Uh, I, <laughs> these things are so hard to predict. I even want to be cautious about you know um, opining too much, because it's just such a confusing market, and there hasn't been a single thing To say, okay, this is why the market—why 20% is not enough. It should be 40. Let's take inflation. If if you look at um, forward inflation, it's expected to come down a lot. So you could look at tomorrow's CPI print if it comes in a tenth or below or high, and get excited about it. But the market is still telling you inflation is not going to be the problem that it is one year from now. Now, if a few months from now that conviction is shaken. then we're going to have a real uh, strong sell-off. If somehow Russia, heaven forbid, becomes more asymmetric, we're going to have a real problem. And so we just don't know. We're in a fog. And we should not rely on the, the lessons that people learned maybe incorrectly for this environment that were good between and 20 and 2022, which was... Um, the Fed is your put. Don't fight the Fed. And um, dips should all be bought. And uh, uh, being short is, uh, is fighting the Fed. You know, this, this really uh, does not feel like that environment, in particular because of where the central banks are versus then.
1: So, so, but the one lesson that should carry through sounds like continue not to fighting the Fed when the Fed reverses their position.
2: I'm glad you said that, Barry, because about nine years ago, I had a prospective investor in my office. We're a long vol fund. Uh, One of our main products is long volatility. And uh, I don't know if he didn't quite know that, because he kind of wagged his finger at me and said, Didn't, you know, it's like Sonny, didn't someone ever tell you don't fight the Fed? Because to be long volatility, when Mario Draghi said, Trust me, I'll do whatever it takes, that's a little. And uh, and that, but that, that psychology of don't fight the Fed, don't be short is in my opinion a lazy person's way of saying let's always be long because if you if that person were around today I don't exactly remember who it even was to to make that call back I'd say if you really believe in don't fight the fed how much of your risk did did you take down when the fed said that they really meant business and we're going to be selling assets for years to come and plus all of these problems that when you add up the number of problems in different theaters I I can't think of a corollary uh, that you know it, it to me it does feel worse in many respects than, than any other experience uh, in the market I've had.
1: So, so you hinted at UK gilts and, and what's going on over in, in London. Um, the strength of the dollar is another factor. How do you think about those when you're considering tail risk and, and volatility?
2: So we're not uh, experts in, uh, in foreign exchange, but I look at the gilt market, for example, and you see like the UK half a percent bond of 2061. Somebody you know, in 2021 bought a 40-year bond that was going to pay, not someone, a lot of people, was going to pay half a percent a year for 40 years. And at the end of all that, the most you could possibly make was half a percent times 40 minus some inflation. And, uh, and that, so that would be 20 points without discounting, without inflation. The thing's down 73 points. So when you, when you think about boundary conditions, you know, and I, what I like to do in, in the derivative markets is look at boundary conditions and say, how much can I make? How much can I lose, and where is there some asymmetry? And um, by the way, we were not short any any UK bonds, to be clear. But there are a lot of trades that looked like this kind of, I can only lose a little bit, but just in case it's not transitory, or just in case there's an unknown unknown that is really problematic, you might be able to make 8 to 10 or 20 times what you might have lost. And to see this move, and it may continue, of higher rates, whether it's the US or, or Europe, Where the investor loses three or four times what they could possibly make at the end of the day with bonds, I think it 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 reminds me of how investors don't really think about um, fixed income and equities in the way that that I do, which is you know equities gives you this unbounded upside. It could be Tesla, it could it could be uh, it could be uh, Faraday Future or Fisker, but you know you're you're minus 100 and you're plus 20,000, and and that's and that's the range. But in fixed income, often there's so little to earn, that when I see my peers talk about high yield at 5% is amazing because it used to be at 3%, I feel like, wait a second, how, how many defaults do we expect this year? There's a lot of companies in that index that are going to run into trouble. So what are we really, how excited can we really get just because high yield is, you know, has widened by two percentage points? And so, so I think fixed income can end up effectively being an option, but people don't look at it as an option. And I I view it often as asymmetric, as an asymmetric short. And that's one of the guiding principles of our tail hedge strategy.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic com. So
1: so let's talk about another um, credit-related issue. A couple of weekends ago, people were talking uh, about uh, the winding credit uh, defaults on Credit Suisse. Um, and surprisingly, you came out and said, everybody catch your breath. Credit Suisse isn't isn't Lehman Brothers. Just look at, at uh, various ratios. What made that so attractive to Shorts? And, and what led you to the conclusion that Credit Suisse was more or less OK?
2: Yeah, I, I didn't start out thinking I want to say something public. I basically have zero Twitter followers before this. Then all of a sudden, uh, um, you know, it, it became a, a thing. I noticed um, that people with hundreds of thousands of followers were saying, Credit Suisse spreads are out their decade high, it's an imminent bankruptcy, uh, imminent default, uh, according to secret sources. And when you see like people with 100 followers saying that's fine, but when you have kind of at the same time almost this, you could almost read that it was the same person sending it from accounts or team with with hundreds of thousands of followers, that this sounds like scaremongering. It sounds like someone trying to make something of some about it. And well, what do I know? I know that this quote: it's at decade a decade high you know, can be used as fake news to say, therefore, it's going to default. But if you look at the spread at the time, the five-year credit spread of CS was two and a half percent. Now, if it defaulted back to our boundary conditions, it could go to zero. It could go to 50. It would be like two and a half to lose or make to make or lose 50 to 100. It's still priced like 25 to one, right? Um, And... uh, Low probability. Very low probability, but it's discussed as something that's about to happen. And so I kind of took offense to it. I, I, I'm supposed to know a thing or two about CDS, so I wrote a little bit about it. And then I posted um, Coca-Cola, by the way, also at decade highs, better stock up on Coca-Cola. And we had you know articles come out saying that I, I was saying Coca-Cola may go out of business, which you know reminded me about uh, sarcasm and, and how it doesn't actually translate uh, to, to at least some of the users. But this point of... You know, some things at a decade widest level. Therefore, a crisis. Um, I, I, uh, I just, I felt, took offense to it, and I, um, I don't have any special connection to Credit Suisse, but I felt like uh, weighing in. And and so far, Credit Suisse still hanging around, right? Has has yet to default. I did get some very nice messages from the the fine folk at Credit Suisse. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So
1: so since we're talking about tail risks, let's talk a little bit about that and hedges. Um, why have equity puts? Or VIX calls
2: so disappointed this year uh, as insurance? Wow. That's that's a brutal question, actually, because there are people, you know, it's like if you say, look, I didn't study hard for the test. I didn't do all well the tests. Okay, mom, dad, whatever, study harder. But when you when you study hard and you say, I'm going to be prudent, I'm going to buy teleprotection, protection. I was there, I was there in January to buy it. And then it doesn't work. It's like, you know, it, it, it's a, it's, tail hedges have to be reliable because they serve a greater purpose. It's not just, how did this manager do unto themselves. It's, I was counting on this tail hedge to do, to do me some great uh, service in my portfolio. And I think the really interesting thing is that the, the VIX is cited all the time as the barometer of fear. Well, so I remember, and probably many of you remember, that in the period, let's say 2012 to 2019, we even talked about there was a single digit day for the VIX. It went below 10. It, it was often between 10 and 12 in good times. But something happened after 2020, which is you know we had COVID and that enormous volatility. It actually destroyed the people picking up nickels in front of the steamroller, aka the short volatility crowd. They were no longer there after March 2020. Um, and then came a new breed of investor, That love to buy options, Um, whether it was options on meme stocks, and you saw the volatilities go nuts there. SoftBank set up a unit to buy options on uh, short, you know, on tech stocks. And culturally, I think in this country, um, on the investing side, Things became fast. Think about you know, when someone, when your friend, because it wasn't me, would, you know, would tell you that um, some NFT went up by 10x. And you'd say, 10x, I, I would like 1x in five years. I'd be really excited about that. And everything became fast, and options are a way to get there fast. So the long-winded way to say, when we came into 2022, the VIX, by prior m- measures, was already at a four-alarm fire. We were at like 22 to 28 on the VIX. And the, that kind of number would have been a bear market the prior decade, but um, but we were at the peak for the S&P. So, the, so tail protection through equity options was incredibly ex- expensive, and it has served investors very poorly, whereas credit spreads came into the year near the lows that they were pre-COVID. They've widened and they've done their job, even if there's still a lot of widening potentially to come.
1: So, so let's dive a little deeper into that. So the end of 2021, peak bull market and the VIX very, very high, so uh, how are investors supposed to put two and two together what what did that signify
2: it meant that if you said i'm going to spend a certain amount of premium like you think about with your car insurance or auto you know home insurance say i have this much premium i'm going to buy a put struck five percent out of the money or ten percent out of the money if i'm right if this insurance was good to buy what kind of payoff profile would i get and you were getting nothing like you would get not just pre-covid but you know over the past let's say 20 years you were getting pretty miserable payouts for, for a bull market. When times are rough and vol is high, you understand why you have to pay a lot. But but coming into this year, um, vol was stubbornly high, and so equity options uh, were extremely expensive. We did a webinar for our clients where we showed that basically across assets, um, a bank, bank America put out some neat research that had the S&P and the NASDAQ as literally out of 50 assets, the two worst you could get uh, interesting payouts from. And so those things are not necessarily undecipherable. But credit, in every sell-off, uh, credit has blown out, whether it's the credit crisis, of course, but even the flash crash. I, I, I remember being surprised that the flash, I was trading during the flash crash, May 2010. Maybe I'll get the date wrong uh, by a little bit. And um, uh, and credit spreads, because of a glitch on the New York Stock Exchange, moved that day almost as much as they did the day of 9-11. So credit Is an option this low spread thing can move a lot you can get an option like payout being short or be exposed to the loss being long Um, and it is in my view a much more reliable tail hedge that's been backed up in in academic research and um, and it also stands to reason that um, you know credit is an option whether you look at a Merton model or you just think about I'm taking this little spread in return for exposing myself to a wider credit spread environment or defaults and this is um, uh, this is why I feel very fortunate that my sandbox, where I grew up in the credit market, you know, is, um, is, a, is a really viable forum for tail edging. So, so
1: I have a last question before we go to audience questions. In the last few minutes, um, given where we are, are how wide have um, credit spreads gone? And if the put side wasn't attractive on equities at the top in the market, how does the call side look
2: on equities today? Um, so, the um, so credit spreads today are it, like in, in absolute terms they're slightly elevated. Like, let's say it this way: Remember December two thousand eighteen, uh, Trump and Xi were having a skirmish. The Fed was you know being uh, uh, was, was 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 being tough on the market while while growth was was faltering. That seems like a walk in the park compared to now, and credit spreads then were roughly the same as they are today so so maybe they shouldn 't have been that wide then, or maybe they 're too low now but But spreads now are elevated, but in my view, nowhere near um, what um, uh, what the risks the hidden risks and observed risks uh, are are in the marketplace now um, in terms of call options you know um, There's moments where credit falls enough that it isn't asymmetric, that it's symmetric, or it looks like if you locked it away in a box, you're going to get a high return compared to defaults. We're not near that yet, and I still believe uh, equities are much more attractive Long, even though there's going to be this sort of technical of people looking with loving eyes at a uh, you know five percent yield or six percent yield, and you can find in some investment grade corporates seven uh, or eight percent yields if you go out far enough on the curve, and um, and so there will be probably some people saying I want the certainty of that yield, uh, but um, you know, but that also comes with plenty of interest rate risk.
1: Yeah, to say the very least. All right, a couple of questions from the audience, starting with where do you see the largest realignments of capital coming in the next 5 to 10 years i don't know if that's really your sort of question
2: but i don't even know what's going to happen in the next 5 months so so 5 years with with uh, with respect i um i really i really don't know but i what i do believe is that the, the QT world. When all this is behind us, there's still a giant balance sheet. Uh, there's a headwind to the market. Uh, is going to be really brutal for investors that have survived. M- meaning from QE. four
1: trillion in Fed assets that have to come off the balance sheets.
2: J- just in the U.S. and maybe they'll go slow or less slow. But um, but I think um, uh, this is going to be a period of much higher volatility than, lo- than the last decade was. So future volatility is going to increase, whereas it was
1: modest but not low over the past
2: decade. Yeah, there were there were punctuated moments, but there was a long period of very low volatility, and, and it seems like um, that may be behind us. Because even if some of the problems go away, you still have the undoing of QE, which is more than ju- just no QE. It's the opposite of QE is, um, is I think, a really uh, underrated, continuous headwind. And final question,
1: and I'm going to modify this. Uh, given where ten-year Treasury yields are today, what does that mean for future GDP growth? What does that mean for the possibility of a recession, either mild or more significant?
2: So, uh, you know, until March, there really weren't any any banks um, calling for a recession as as the most likely case. It was around then, maybe one or two banks. Obviously, Larry Summers and others did speak out. Um, I think that. Um, these kinds of forecasts are, are really folly. Literally, we're standing in a thick fog, trying to like play tennis, and we can't even see the ball. So, so you know, like when I hear people, st- and by the way, that's a great question you asked. But like when people answer it, I kind of shudder. So I'm going to try to not uh, shudder at myself and say say. Who knows? But what I know is that we should be um, aware that that this is not the market we were in, and and this idea of thinking, this still, I can feel this thinking of, you know, as soon as CPI misses, as soon as we come in at seven something, okay, it's going to be off to the races with the market. I feel like this is this is a um, personally, I think it's a sell the rally market because people are not yet accustomed to all of the issues hanging over us and. Uh, Anyway, that's my two cents.
1: Thank you, Boaz, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Boaz Weinstein, founder of Saber Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the 400 previous ones we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together. Each week, Mohamed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is our producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.